Chapter 3 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. Arnold Bennett. Of Bennett, it is quite easy to conjure up a recognizable picture by imaging everything that Wells is not, that is, everything interior, everything having to do with attitudes and ideas, everything beyond the mere craft of arranging words in ingratiating sequences. As stylists, of course, they have many points of contact. Each writes a journalese that is extraordinarily fluent and tuneful. Each is apt to be carried away by the rush of his own smartness, but, in their matter, they stand at opposite poles. Wells has a believing mind and cannot resist the lascivious beckonings and eye-winkings of meretricious novelty. Bennett carries skepticism so far that it often takes on the appearance of a mere peasant-like suspicion of ideas, bellicose and unintelligent. Wells is astonishingly intimate and confidential, and more than one of his novels reeks with a shameless sort of autobiography. Bennett, even when he makes use of personal experience, contrives to get impersonality into it. Wells, finally, is a sentimentalist and cannot conceal his feelings. Bennett, of all the English novelists of the day, is the most steadily aloof and ironical. This habit of irony and truth is the thing that gives Bennett all his characteristic color, and is at the bottom of both his peculiar merit and his peculiar limitation. On the one hand, it sets him free from the besetting sin of the contemporary novelist. He never preaches. He has no messianic delusion. He is above the puerile theories that have engulfed such romantic men as Wells, Winston Churchill, and the late Jack London, and even, at times, such sentimental agnostics as Dreiser. But on the other hand, it leaves him empty of the passion that is, when all is said and done, the chief mark of the true novelist. The trouble with him is that he cannot feel with his characters, that he never involves himself emotionally in their struggles against destiny, that the drama of their lives never thrills or dismays him, and the result is that he is unable to arouse in the reader that penetrating sense of kinship, that profound and instinctive sympathy, which in its net effect is almost indistinguishable from the understanding born of experiences actually endured and emotions actually shared. Joseph Conrad, in a memorable piece of criticism, once put the thing clearly. My task, he said, is, by the power of the written word, to make you hear, to make you feel. It is, above all, to make you see. Here, seeing, it must be obvious, is no more than feeling put into physical terms. It is not the outward aspect that is to be seen, but the inner truth. And the end to be sought by that apprehension of inner truth is responsive recognition the sympathy of poor mortal for poor mortal, the tidal uprush of feeling that makes us all one. 
Bennett, it seems to me, cannot evoke it. His characters, as they pass, have a deceptive brilliance of outline, but they soon fade. One never finds them haunting the memory, as Lord Jim haunts it, or Carrie Meeber, or Huck Finn, or Tom Jones. The reason is not far to seek. It lies in the plain fact that they appear to their creator not as men and women whose hopes and agonies are of poignant concern, not as tragic comedians in isolated and concentrated dramas, but as mean figures in an infinitely dispersed and unintelligible farce, as helpless nobodies in an epic struggle that transcends both their volition and their comprehension. Thus viewing them, he fails to humanize them completely, and so he fails to make their emotions contagious. They are, in their way, often vividly real. They are thoroughly accounted for. What there is of them is unfailingly lifelike. They move and breathe in an environment that pulses and glows. But the attitude of the author toward them remains, in the end, the attitude of a biologist toward his laboratory animals. He does not feel with them, and neither does his reader. Bennett's chief business, in fact, is not with individuals at all, even though he occasionally brings them up almost to life-size. What concerns him principally is the common life of large groups, the action and reaction of castes and classes, the struggle among societies. In particular, he is engrossed by the colossal and disorderly functioning of the English middle class, a division of mankind inordinately mixed in race, confused in ideals, and illogical in ideas. It is a group that has had interpreters aplenty, past and present. A full half of the literature of the Victorian era was devoted to it, but never, I believe, has it had an interpreter more resolutely detached and relentless. Never has it had one less shaken by emotional involvement. Here, the very lack that detracts so much from Bennett's stature as a novelist in the conventional sense is converted into a valuable possession. Better than any other man of his time, he has got upon paper the social anatomy and physiology of the masses of average, everyday, unimaginative Englishmen. One leaves the long series of Five Towns books with a sense of having looked down the tube of a microscope upon a huge swarm of infinitely little but incessantly struggling organisms, creatures engaged furiously in the pursuit of grotesque and unintelligible ends helpless participants in and victims of a struggle that takes on to their eyes a thousand lofty purposes, all of them puerile to the observer above its turmoil. Here, he seems to say, is the middle, the average, the typical Englishman. Here is the fellow as he appears to himself, virtuous, laborious, important, intelligent, made in God's image. And here he is, in fact, swinish, ineffective, inconsequential.
stupid, a feeble parody upon his maker. It is irony that penetrates and devastates, and it is unrelieved by any show of the pity that gets into the irony of Conrad, or of the tolerant claim of kinship that mitigates that of Fielding and Thackeray. It is harsh and cocksure. It has, at its moments, some flavor of actual boundarism. One instinctively shrinks from so smart-alecky a pulling off of underclothes and unveiling of warts. It is easy to discern in it, indeed, a note of distinct hostility, and even of disgust. The long exile of the author is not without its significance. He not only got in France something of the Frenchman's aloof and disdainful view of the English, he must have taken a certain distaste for the national scene with him in the first place, else he would not have gone at all. The same attitude shows itself in W. L. George, another Englishman smeared with Gallic foreignness. Both men, it will be recalled, reacted to the tremendous emotional assault of the war, not by yielding to it ecstatically in the manner of the unpolluted islanders, but by shrinking from it into a reserve that was naturally misunderstood. George has put his sniffs into Blind Alley. Bennett has got his into The Pretty Lady. I do not say that either book is positively French. What I do say is that both mirror an attitude that has been somehow emptied of mere nationalism. An Italian adventure, I dare say, would have produced the same effect, or a Spanish, or Russian, or German, but it happened to be French. What the Bennett story attempts to do is what every serious Bennett story attempts to do, to exhibit dramatically the great gap separating the substance from the appearance in the English character. It seems to me that its prudent and self-centered G.J. Hope is a vastly more real Englishman of his class, and, what is more, an Englishman vastly more useful and creditable to England than any of the gaudy Bayards and Sids of conventional war fiction. Here, indeed, the irony somehow fails. The man we are obviously expected to disdain converts himself, toward the end, into a man not without his touches of the admirable. He is no hero, God knows, and there is no more brilliance in him than you will find in an average country squire or parliament man, but he has the rare virtue of common sense, and that is probably the virtue that has served the English better than all others. Curiously enough, the English reading public recognized the irony, but failed to observe its confutation, and so the book got Bennett into bad odor at home, and into worse odor among the sedulous apes of English ideas and emotions on this side of the water. But it is a sound work nevertheless, a sound work with a large and unescapable defect. That defect is visible in a good many of the other things that Bennett has done. It is the product of his emotional detachment, and it commonly reveals itself as an inability to take his own story seriously. 
Sometimes he pokes open fun at it, as in the roll call. More often he simply abandons it before it is done, as if weary of a too tedious foolery. This last process is plainly visible in The Pretty Lady. The thing that gives form and direction to that story is a simple enough problem in psychology, to wit, what will happen when a man of sound education and decent instincts, of sober age and prudent habit, of common sense, and even of certain mild cleverness, what will happen logically and naturally when such a normal, respectable, cautious fellow finds himself disquietingly in love with a lady of no position at all, in brief, with a lady but lately of the town. Bennett sets the problem, and for a couple of hundred pages investigates it with the utmost ingenuity and address, exposing and discussing its sub-problems, tracing the gradual shifting of its terms, prodding with sharp insight into the psychological material entering into it. And then, as if suddenly tired of it, worse, as if suddenly convinced that the thing has gone on long enough, that he has given the public enough of a book for its money, he forthwith evades the solution altogether and brings down his curtain upon a palpably artificial denouement. The device murders the book. One is arrested at the start by a fascinating statement of the problem. One follows a discussion of it that shows Bennett at his brilliant best, fertile in detail, alert to every twist of motive, incisively ironical at every step, and then, at the end, one is incontinently turned out of the booth. The effect is that of being assaulted with an ice-pick by a hitherto amiable bartender, almost to that of being bitten by a pretty girl in the midst of an amicable bus. That effect, unluckily, is no stranger to the reader of Bennett novels. One encounters it in many of them. There is a tremendous marshalling of meticulous and illuminating observation. The background throbs with color. The sardonic humor is never failing. It is a capital show. But always one goes away from it with a sense of having missed the conclusion. Always there is a final begging of the question. It is not hard to perceive the attitude of mind underlying this chronic evasion of issues. It is, in essence, agnosticism carried to the last place of decimals. Life itself is meaningless. Therefore, the discussion of life is meaningless. Therefore, why try futilely to get a meaning into it? The reasoning, unluckily, has holes in it. It may be sound logically, but... It is psychologically unworkable. One goes to novels not for the bald scientific fact, but for a romantic amelioration of it. When they carry that amelioration to the point of uncritical certainty, when they are full of ideas that click and whirl like machines, then the mind revolts against the childish naivety of the thing. But... When there is no organization of the spectacle at all, when it is presented as a mere formless panorama, 
when to the sense of its unintelligibility is added the suggestion of its inherent chaos, then the mind revolts no less. Art can never be simple representation. It cannot deal solely with precisely what is. It must, at the least, present the real in the light of some recognizable ideal. It must give to the eternal farce, if not some moral, then, at all events, some direction. For without that formulation, there can be no clear-cut separation of the individual will from the general stew and turmoil of things, and without that separation, there can be no coherent drama, and without that drama, there can be no evocation of emotion, and without that emotion, art is unimaginable. The field of the novel is very wide. There is room on the one side for a brilliant play of ideas and theories, provided only they do not stiffen the struggle of man with man or of man with destiny into a mere struggle of abstractions. There is room on the other side for the most complete agnosticism, provided only it be tempered by feeling. Joseph Conrad is quite as unshakable an agnostic as Bennett. He is a ten times more implacable ironist. But there is yet a place in his scheme for a sardonic sort of pity, and pity, however sardonic, is perhaps as good an emotion as another. The trouble with Bennett is that he essays to sneer, not only at the futile aspiration of man, but also at the agony that goes with it. The result is an air of affectation, of superficiality, almost of stupidity. The manner, on the one hand, is that of a highly skillful and profoundly original artist, but, on the other hand, it is that of a sophomore just made aware of Haeckel, Bradlaugh, and Nietzsche. Bennett's unmitigated skepticism explains two things that have constantly puzzled the reviewers and that have been the cause of a great deal of idiotic writing about him, for him as well as against him. One of these things is his utter lack of anything properly describable as artistic conscience, his extreme readiness to play the star hurry in the seraglio of the publishers. The other is his habit of translating platitudes into racy journalese and gravely offering them to the suburban trade as pocket philosophies. Both crimes, it seems to me, have their rise in his congenital incapacity for taking ideas seriously, even including his own. If this, he appears to say, is the tosh you want, then here is another dose of it. Personally, I have little interest in that sort of thing. Even good novels, the best I can do, are no more than compromises with a silly convention. I am not interested in stories. I am interested in the anatomy of human melancholy. I am a descriptive sociologist, with overtones of malice. But... If you want stories, and can pay for them, I am willing to give them to you. And if you prefer bad stories, then here is a bad one. Don't assume you can shame me by deploring my willingness. Think of what your doctors do every day, 
and your lawyers and your men of God, and your stockbrokers and your traders and politicians, I am surely no worse than the average. In fact, I am probably a good deal superior to the average, for I am at least not deceived by my own mountebankery. I at least know my sound goods from my shoddy. Such, I dare say, is the process of thought behind such hollow trade goods as buried alive and the lion's share. One does not need the man's own amazing confidences to hear his snickers at his audience, at his work, and at himself. The books of boiled mutton philosophy and the manner of Dr. Orison Sweat Marden and Dr. Frank Crane and the occasional pot-boilers for the newspapers and magazines probably have much the same origin. What appears in them is not a weakness for ideas that are stale and obvious, but a distrust of all ideas whatsoever. The public, with its mob yearning to be instructed, edified and pulled by the nose, demands certainties. It must be told definitely, and a bit raucously, that this is true and that is false. But there are no certainties. Ergo, one notion is as good as another, and if it happens to be utter flubdub, so much the better, for it is precisely flubdub that penetrates the popular skull with the greatest facility. The way is already made. The hole already gapes. An effort to approach the hidden and baffling truth would simply burden the enterprise with difficulty. Moreover, the effort is intrinsically laborious and ungrateful. Moreover, there is probably no hidden truth to be uncovered. Thus, by the route of skepticism, Bennett apparently arrives at his soothsaying. That he actually believes in his own theorizing is inconceivable. He is far too intelligent a man to hold that any truths within the comprehension of the popular audience are sound enough to be worth preaching, or that it would do any good to preach them if they were. No doubt, he is considerably amused in petto by the gravity with which his bedizened platitudes have been received by persons accustomed to that sort of fare, particularly in America. It would be interesting to hear his private view of the corn-fed critics who hymn him as a profound and impassioned moralist with a mission to rescue the plain people from the heresies of such fellows as Dreiser. So much for two of the salient symptoms of his underlying skepticism. Another is to be found in his incapacity to be, in the ordinary sense, ingratiating. It is simply beyond him to say the pleasant thing with any show of sincerity. Of all his books, probably the worst are his book on the war and his book on the United States. The latter was obviously undertaken with some notion of paying off a debt. Bennett had been to the United States. The newspapers had hailed him in their sideshow way. The women's clubs had pawed over him. He had, no doubt, come home a good deal richer. What he essayed to do was to write a volume on the Republic that should be at once colorably accurate and discreetly agreeable. The enterprise was quite beyond him. 
The book not only failed to please Americans, it offended them in a thousand subtle ways, and from its appearance dates the decline of the author's vogue among us. He is not, of course, completely forgotten, but it must be plain that Wells now stands a good deal above him in the popular estimation, even the later Wells of bad novel after bad novel. His war book missed fire in much the same way. It was workmanlike. It was deliberately urbane. It was undoubtedly truthful. But it fell flat in England, and it fell flat in America. There is no little significance in the fact that the British government, in looking about for English authors to uphold the British cause in America and labor for American participation in the war, found no usefulness in Bennett. Practically every other novelist with an American audience was drafted for service, but not Bennett. He was non est during the heat of the fray, and when at length he came forward with the pretty lady, the pained manner with which it was received quite justified the judgment of those who had passed him over. What all this amounts to may be very briefly put. In one of the requisite qualities of the first-rate novelist, Bennett is almost completely lacking, and so it would be no juggling with paradox to argue that, at bottom, he is scarcely a novelist at all. His books, indeed, that is, his serious books, the books of his better canon, often fail utterly to achieve the effect that one associates with the true novel. One carries away from them not the impression of a definite transaction, not the memory of an outstanding and appealing personality, not the aftertaste of a profound emotion, but merely the sense of having witnessed a gorgeous but incomprehensible parade, coming out of nowhere and going to God knows where. They are magnificent as representation. They bristle with charming detail. They radiate the humors of an acute and extraordinary man. They are entertainment of the best sort, but there is seldom anything in them of that clear, well-aimed and solid effect which one associates with the novel as work of art. Most of these books, indeed, are no more than collections of essays defectively dramatized. What is salient in them is not their people, but their backgrounds, and their people are forever fading into their backgrounds. Is there a character in any of these books that shows any sign of living as Pendennis lives, and Barry Lyndon, and Emma Bovary, and David Copperfield, and the George Moore, who is always his own hero? Who remembers much about Sophia Baines, save that she lived in the five towns, or even about Clayhanger? Young George Cannon, in The Roll Call, is no more than an anatomical chart in a lecture on modern marriage. Hilda Lesway's canon clayhanger is not only inscrutable, she is also dim. The man and woman of whom God hath joined, perhaps the best of all the Bennett novels, I have so far forgotten that I cannot remember their names. Even Denry the Audacious grows misty. 
One remembers that he was the center of the farce, but now he is long gone, and the farce remains. This constant remainder, whether he be actually novelist or no novelist, is sufficient to save Bennett, it seems to me, from the swift oblivion that so often overtakes the popular fictioneer. He may not play the game according to the rules, but the game that he plays is, nevertheless, extraordinarily diverting, and calls for an incessant display of the finest sort of skill. No writer of his time has looked into the life of his time with sharper eyes, or set forth his findings with a greater charm and plausibility. Within his deliberately narrow limits, he had done precisely the thing that Balzac undertook to do, and Zola after him. He has painted a full-length portrait of a whole society, accurately, brilliantly, and in certain areas almost exhaustively. The middle Englishman, not the individual but the type, is there displayed more vividly than he is displayed anywhere else that I know of. The thing is rigidly held to its aim. There is no episodic descent or ascent to other fields. But within that one field, every resource of observation, of invention, and of imagination has been brought to bear upon the business. Every one, save that deep feeling for man in his bitter tragedy, which is the most important of them all. Bennett, whatever his failing in this capital function of the artist, is certainly of the very highest consideration as craftsman. Scattered through his books, even his bad books, there are fragments of writing that are quite unsurpassed in our day. The shoe-shining episode in The Pretty Lady, the adulterous interlude in Whom God Hath Joined, the dinner party in Paris Nights, the whole discussion of the Canon Ingram marriage in The Roll Call, the studio party in The Lion's Share. Such writing is rare and exhilarating. It is to be respected, and the man who did it is not to be dismissed. End of chapter 3 Recording by Linda Johnson